Now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo briefs reporters. Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, Francesco, good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask you on Iran. Uh, you're asking the UN Security Council to renew the arms embargo on Iran. Um, can the US make the argument that it is still a state participant to the, in the JCPOA after it scratched it uh, in 2018? I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. UN Security Council Resolution 2231 is very clear. We don't have to, we don't have to declare ourselves a participant. UN Security Council Resolution 2231 is unambiguous. Where the United States is a participant in the in the UN Security, it's just there in the language. There's nothing magic about this. There's no fancy. I, someone suggested this is fancy lowering. It's just reading. Is that Costanza over there? <laughs> what are you doing here? Crazy? Or didn't you quit? What? Oh, what, Dad? Are you kidding? I didn't quit? Why? You took that seriously. Welcome to episode three of Nyatcast, everybody. I am joined today with Jamal Abdi, Nyak's president, and Dr. S.L. Rad, our research fellow. We're into like week six of quarantine and, uh, you know, things don't seem to be slowing down at all. In fact, it's been kind of an exciting week uh, as far as the Iran world is considered. But I was wondering, uh, maybe we should just start with the arms embargo. Um, Jamal, you want to give a little overview over all this sort of like technical Iran nuclear deal, sunset provisions that we keep hearing about in a way that, you know, folks who maybe didn't study nukes or UN security resolutions can understand? Basically, the Trump administration has, since they took office, and especially since they announced that they were abandoning and leaving the Iran deal, been trying to kill the deal. And despite the you know expectations of both supporters and detractors of the agreement, uh, the deal is actually still alive. And we're now heading into an election where Mr. Trump is increasingly looking vulnerable um, because Americans are not injecting bleach fast enough to eradicate the coronavirus. And so it sort of looks like the finish line for this administration potentially in terms of their efforts to kill the Iran deal. There's a real possibility that we have a Democratic administration come in in 2021 um, that goes back to the deal. And in spite of the best efforts of Trump and FDD and APAC and the machine around all these guys, um, Obama's deal will survive and we could actually get back on track with negotiations with Iran, um, which would be amazing because I think Trump has fundamentally changed so many things. And there's actually a possibility that he did not manage to kill the Iran deal. So the latest gambit from uh, Trump and Pompeo is they're going to go to the UN and claim that the United States is a participant in the JCPOA and therefore has the power under the UN Security Council to snap back the UN sanctions that had been lifted under the deal. Under the JCPOA in 2015, all the nuclear sanctions on Iran were lifted or suspended. Um, but the Obama administration did manage to negotiate that 
for five years, the arms embargo on Iran at the UN would stay in place. Instead of allowing that arms embargo to lapse, uh, which admittedly, you know, we're not in a very good place when it comes to the U.S. asserting its interests in the Middle East vis-a-vis Iran. Um, the process that the deal, hopefully, you know, we all had hoped would set up is not working because the U.S. is not part of the deal. So in order to block that arms embargo from being lifted, the U.S. wants to either uh, blackmail the Security Council into extending the arms embargo through a standalone resolution, or if the UN Security Council, which supports the deal, uh, refuses to go along with that, which would be a violation of the deal, the US is going to say, well, there's this special snapback procedure that was cooked into the UN Security Council re- resolution codifying the deal, which says that any one country can essentially snap back the sanctions on Iran as long as they're a participant in the JCPOA. The U.S. is not. Now the, the debate is, and it's this like horrible legalistic debate where, you know, Pompeo is, you know, smiling as he lies to our faces and pretends like, I mean, I don't even think he thinks we're as stupid as he is treating us, but is going to now pretend like they believe that they're participants in the JCPOA. And so they have the power to go to the UN and snap back the sanctions. I mean, it just seems like it should be a little bit simpler, right? I mean, you're, I mean, you're right. This is a very complicated issue. And especially when it comes to nuke technology, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to understand, but it seems to me that there are two parts to this. One is um, if we can't get the Europeans to buy in because they believe that the arms embargo is a legitimate part of the Iran nuclear deal, then what do we do? And the other part is, you know, we've refused to be at the table. So I don't understand how we think we can participate when we spent the last two something years trying to flip it on its head. I actually don't think it's uh, as complicated as people make it seem. I understand. So I understand that there's this tendency in in not just DC, but DC being one of the like central locations of world politics, but just like in the political realm to use this kind of confusing and convoluted legal language to talk, talk about things. And I come from academia. So the idea that I'm saying, because academia classically does that too, right? We're just going to use a lot of puffery in the way that we talk about things to confuse everyone else and make ourselves look like the experts. Because I've used so many words that you don't understand. Now you assume I know what I'm talking about. Thank you for that caveat, because you really were at risk of triggering me with your anti-DC talk. So thank you for... (laughs) Well, I don't know how exciting a world is where someone wants to take something as simple as you made a deal... You broke the deal, thus you are no longer a participant in it, and wants to twist it into so many different shapes to argue a different point. It's basic, and the thing that's frustrating, I think, for any average American or any average person who's listening to this debate and why it sounds so ridiculous is that they understand it. And so the the fact that we are arguing that we are participants in something we are not participating in is just it's stupid. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. And we're sitting here twisting ourselves around trying to create counter arguments when the reality is we are not participating in the deal. You know, Pompeo sort of laughingly says, you know, we don't have to declare ourselves participants. It's in the language. Well, yes, it's in the language because originally you are participants, but now there's this thing called time and it's passed and you broke that. So you're no longer a participant in something, even though it existed on paper five years ago. Obama is no longer the president of the United States. He was at some point, but he isn't because time passed and new circumstances came about. It's these really basic things that become convoluted and and try to confuse people's senses. But the reality of it is we are manipulating an international accord. We are manipulating an international community and we're using our power as we have 
this entire time vis-a-vis Iran to make a case as to why we get to dictate what happens in Iran. At some point, we're going to run out of that capital. And like you said, like by undermining the international order that was designed by the United States, the post-war order designed by the United States, that is the greatest source of our power. Now, I think the people behind this really think, no, the greatest source of our power is not diplomatic leverage. It's not international order. It's our military. And we're going to fall back on our military. And I really think that's how Pompeo operates. And that's why we're in this position where this is one of the last vestiges of you know, U.S. diplomatic power when it comes to Iran is uh, the remaining constraints on Iran at the UN Security Council and the JCPOA. And now Pompeo is going to go and destroy that. And the fact that you know the suppose the, the greatest power on the earth is relying on this hackneyed reading of a UN Security Council resolution and trying to find the way that a clause is worded to piss off the entire world world and try to find a loophole to put pressure on little little Iran. It's just such a absurd and uh, a stark example of how diminished this administration has made the United States, that this is how we're behaving. We're essentially throwing a temper tantrum at the UN Security Council in hopes that we can get people to pressure Iran. And we have to remember that this arms embargo was put in place by President Obama. Yes, Trump and Pompeo. It was Obama who got the deal, and it was Obama who got the arms embargo. And he got the arms embargo. He got China and Russia to sign off on it in 2010 because we weren't doing crap like this. Good luck ever getting China and Russia or Iran or any or even the Europeans to sign off on anything the United States wants to do if this is the way we're going to behave. And so I think that it's just it's so ruinous and it's going to outlive this administration if they're allowed to get away with this. I was going to say, so I think on top of that, there's this idea that so we're talking about our standing in the international community, but we also should be talking about our standing within our own community, right? Our standing within looking at Americans and how Americans view the situation. Um, mm. I'm under the impression that we're still a democracy. And so the will of the people should have some bearing on, on how our government behaves. If we want to actually look at the people at this administration, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but I'll share it. I think that, that we have to make a distinction between Trump and Pompeo, because I think the more dangerous person in this situation is actually Pompeo. The reason being, this is not a secret to anyone. Trump is not a politician. He's a real estate mogul. And so he doesn't really know anything about foreign policy. He's relying on advisors, right? But his agenda, to his own words, his agenda is not war with Iran. It's not war in the Middle East. Um, It's to curb Iran's ability to get a nuclear weapon. Um, He's open to negotiations, which he's said and tweeted and repeated over and over again. So this is, why are we in this position right now? Is because he's getting very, very bad advice from someone who actually has the exact opposite sort of agenda. And why that's problematic for uh, this for this administration, you know, anything that happens in November, is that's not what his own voting base wants. The Republican voting base that voted this person into office still says, still in polling, says that they do not want wars, they're tired of endless wars, that the, uh, Iran not getting a nuclear weapon is a huge concern and that the best way of doing it is through negotiations. So Pompeo is really coming in and just blowing all of this up, representing a fringe opinion. Forget the international community for a minute, right? Let's say we don't care about the international community. We're America first. We're isolationist. This is our point of view. Even in that point of view, this is the wrong way of going about things. So that's what's sort of fascinating about it is you're alone on an island, on an island, it's, there's, there's really no one who's supporting this point of view, including your own people, including your own populace. 
I really think, I mean, I, you know, Pompeo is a, he's a Tea Party congressman. He came into Congress on the Tea Party wave. And I think this is, this is how we got Trump. You know, the, the system, you know, Congress did not work under Obama because we had a party that was unwilling to allow things to proceed in normal order. It was just jam everything up. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's raising the debt limit or passing, you know, funding for the federal government. It's just a scorched earth approach, and it's all about power for one party. And this is, in some ways, how the United States has operated on the world stage, but never so blatantly. You know, uh, utilizing its power to be able to kind of bulldoze over um, some of the rules that apply to other actors. But I think what this represents is the sort of the the tea partyization of us uh you know international politics like we're we're essentially returning the un into what pompeo and his allies turned congress into which broke congress and gave us this president who i think the appeal of trump is the system doesn't work the mechanisms are broken i'm going to get it done i'm just going to run over everybody and get it done whether it's bullying this or that and so now we see this happening um uh, on the world stage. Um, you know, we don't want to get bogged down in the legalese, but that's really where this administration is taking things. You know, this reading of the, the UN resolution, it can be read a certain way. But I think that there are, you know, this is inherently a political discussion. And I think the real position of Pompeo is Iran is bad. Uh, allowing them to buy arms is bad. And so the ends justify the means, even if it means distorting and convoluting this UN Security Council resolution and alienating people. The ends justify the means because Iran is a bad actor and giving them arms is bad, and so we should be able to do whatever we want. And then on the other side of the equation, it's you know people like us who are saying, well, this is not about like the arms embargo or this or that. I mean, I don't really take any position. I think I actually think. Yeah, let's have an arms embargo on every actor in the Middle East who is who is destabilizing things. Let's go ahead and do it. So Oman, you can buy arms now. Congratulations. Nobody else can. Um, but but on our side, this what this is really about is about destroying the nuclear deal. It has nothing to do with the arms embargo. The EU has an arms embargo on Iran that is going to be in place until 2023 at least. The United States has vast sanctions and and embargoes on Iran's ability to to buy arms. This is all a ruse, and it's all about making sure that the next president does not have a diplomatic track with Iran. Because otherwise, the last four years for all of these, the Netanyahu's and Bin Salman's and FDD's and APAC's will have been for naught because Obama's deal will have lasted and there will be a way out of the, um, you know, the, the pathway to war with Iran. Well, beyond that, if we, if we have an actual argument to make about, you know, bad actors and destabilizing the region and arms embargoes, we're the number one seller of arms in the world. We destabilize the region. We keep invading it. So the idea, and this is like, I always go back to this because it's so frustrating to listen to these debates when they're so skewed and so biased with almost no self-reflection. Like we sit here and talk about an arms embargo on Iran. You look at the top 15 nations and their military spending. The U.S. spends 38% of the entire world's global budget on military. You know what category Iran falls under? Other, with like 180 <laughs> other nations. It's ludicrous to talk about it. You have Saudi Arabia who's carrying out what is, according to the United Nations, the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet in Yemen, and they're doing it with U.S. arms. 
You have terrorists that are armed with U.S. weapons. How does that happen? Well, it's not Iran selling it to them. It's us selling it to them. That's why the region is loaded up with weapons. So if you're going to go to this place where, you know, if we're now the arbiters of peace in the world, if that's our new sort of facade, maybe we should not arm them to the teeth. Maybe we should not be armed to the teeth. Maybe we don't need more nuclear weapons than would create a nuclear winter. Like, why do you need more than that? Once you've had so, once you have so many nuclear weapons that you could basically kill human life on earth, what's the point of the next one? There's no logic behind this argument, but then, you know, it's framed as Iran is the bad actor. They're the ones that are just ruining everything in the region. It would have been peaceful had it not been for this particular government. There would be no arms there. There would be no conflicts there. It makes no sense. We got some less than great news about Dr. Askari earlier this week. Uh, he's an Iranian professor who has been detained by ICE and kind of shuffled around multiple times to various facilities. Uh, so he has contracted COVID-19 and he's a high risk individual. So I know there's a lot of stress, a lot of concern. Uh, and SL and Jamal, I know you guys are in touch with some of the relevant parties. So I was wondering if you can give us kind of a case update. So the latest that... I have in um, speaking to one of the lawyers that is directly in contact with Dr. Askari is that yeah, obviously the bad news is that he's now tested positive for COVID-19. Um, and this is, you know, despite the fact that for now, the story broke um, over a month ago. So people have been advocating behind the scenes to get him released to avoid exactly the situation because, you know, the concern because of his underlying conditions um, and obviously we're hoping for the best, but the concern is that this is, this could be fatal for him. And what's actually shocking at this moment is that he's still not being taken to a hospital, despite the fact that he has underlying conditions. Um, actually, I think in the story that Sam Levin from the guardian broke, one of the things that he said in communicating was, um, they would only take him to a hospital if he couldn't breathe. So basically right. once he reaches the point <laughs> where he's, you know, in, in it's, you're either going to die or we're going to take you to the hospital. Then they'll relinquish and take a man who's done absolutely nothing wrong, um, has been acquitted of anything, any wrongdoing, um, and came to the U S with a valid visa was issued a valid visa to, you know, went through all, we talk all the time about uh, immigration and we're not going to get into that debate, but there's this idea of, well, you know, people have to come here legally. Okay. That's what he did. Um, and this is not someone who came here as, you know, a foreigner, as a tourist who wanted to do anything unsavory. He was here to visit his children who are actually Americans who live in the United States. This is someone who studied in the United States, got his PhD back in the nineties. So, you know, if this is how, if this is how we treat, um, this is how we treat people. I find it difficult sometimes to, to digest how we criticize other states like Iran, right? Like what Iran does when they detain dual nationals, um, basically holding them as like chips for a negotiation. We condemn that rightfully. We should condemn that. But what are we doing in this case? Um, it's hard to tell at this point. Yeah. And it's, it's our own lawless police force. ICE, which is, you know, ICE is in violation of, you know, a judge says you are exonerated of your charges. You are free to go. 
And then ICE swoops in and picks this guy up. And they're not, they don't have to respond to any higher power other than, I guess, Donald Trump. Um, you know, we have, there are many members of Congress who are advocating for Dr. Asghari. ICE doesn't listen to them. Um, you've had cases where judges have issued orders to not deport people. ICE doesn't listen to them. They're above the law, which it does sound a lot like what we what we deal with when we talk about Iran and you know parallel judiciary systems and bodies like the IRGC and things like that. Um, it's it's eerie. Uh, and then the other the, the other piece of it is just that um, I mean even Iran. The horrible hostage-taking government has not had an American die in detention, um, with the possible exception of Bob Levinson, which is extremely murky. And you know, there's the fact that we don't really know who was holding him, and that he was on a CIA mission, and all these things. But until now, I mean, this is this is potentially a very big deal if you have an Iranian national. Uh, in extra judicial detention in the United States who then dies in our custody, that that is a diplomatic crisis, I think. And to me, I mean, what's really scary is that, you know, Iran has been granting furloughs to all of these detainees and including, you know, dual nationals and and some, you know, political prisoners, but not all of them. Um, And people like, you know, uh, uh, Siamak, Namazi uh, and his father are at real risk of c- contracting COVID. Um, there have been reports of uh, of the risks that they face um, in detention, and they're they're not being furloughed. And so, I mean, I just see a situation where you do have this American dual national contract COVID, uh, and it just it's a wash because oh well, we're we're holding Iranian nationals who contracted COVID and passed away, so you know we're even. Um, so it's just scary. I mean, it's just it's this human toll, and you know, these are people we know or that we know through people, and it's it's sad and it's scary that we cannot affect the decisions of our government. They're they're above the law. They're above accountability. I think you know what's funny about the Askari case is um, it highlights the sort of uh, inclination to use language on paper to manipulate language on paper um, to make like a political point. So we just, we talked about obviously the whole notion of the arms embargo. We won't go go to get into that again, but the fact that it's all on paper, we're participants, we're not really. We talk about sanctions and humanitarian aid being exempt on the ground in reality, that's not what's happening. In the case of Askari, the reason he gets picked up is because they say, well, you don't have a valid ID, you don't have a valid visa. Well, of course he doesn't have a valid visa. You revoked it upon his entry to arrest him. So it's this On charges that were, he was exonerated from. So he was on bail. Right, he was detained when he arrived in the U.S., and then he, this man, qualified for bail for two years, awaiting trial. Never actually goes to trial because the government has no evidence. This is why it gets thrown out by a judge. But on the day that he's exonerated, ICE picks him up. That makes no sense, right? Like all of this based on technicalities, and really, the you know, we can get into the, the politics of these states and how they interact. I, that's not my bigger concern. My bigger concern is the fact that these are actual human beings who are suffering. As we sit here and have debates, have the privilege to have debates about legal language, human beings across the board are suffering. People in Iran are dying because they don't have medical supplies, and we're debating whether or not humanitarian exemptions means anything. 
Okay, this man, this human being has done absolutely nothing wrong and he could die in custody and that's something that's on our government. We are allowing this to happen. He has a family, he has a daughter that lives in the United States, a son that lives in the United States. These are Americans. Their father might die because we're having legal arguments. We're politicizing everything that we can get our hands on, including this pandemic within the United States. We have not only managed to hurt people internationally, we're now allowing thousands upon thousands of Americans to die because our government is so ridiculous that it politicizes a pandemic within its own borders. So this sort of, you know, having these conversations are only important to the extent that we care about human beings and how they're suffering in the process of everything being politicized. And, you know, Iran is just an example of, of how we do this, but of course we do it across the board. I think it's, you know, these are all these are all brilliant insights. And clearly, Dr. Ascari's case is devastating on a lot of levels. But I think it's also worth remembering that he is among thousands of people that are being detained by ICE. And Iranian or not, uh, you know, all of these people deserve, a, you know, they deserve to not be handled roughly by an agency that essentially acts with impunity. And we love to use the word impunity when it comes to Iran, when we talk about the Basij or the IRGC. But as Jamal said, we have those, you know, we have our parallels here. And so, you know, ideally, Dr. Askari gets the you know medical treatment he needs. He's released. He's offered to self-deport. You know, we want to see him free. But once he's free, this, the struggle is not done. There are thousands of people that don't have advocates for them. In, in prison. And Dr. Ascari is very lucky in a lot of ways because he does have advocates on the outside and he himself is acting as an advocate for those on the inside. Absolutely. And I'm so happy you brought that up that he's acting as an advocate because that allows us to know other stories. And so to your point, you know, ICE is, ICE is problematic for so many reasons. And there's so many people that are wrongfully detained. There are stories of people who came, so Ascari obviously came here on a tourist visa. He was planning on visiting his children, but there are cases of people uh, who were seeking asylum, right? So this is someone who left their home country because it's in one way or another, uh, their life is in danger being there. And so they sought asylum to come to the United States who are now asking to self-deport, who are begging to self-deport that means they are in more danger here than they were in their home country that they escaped from. Like we have to really think about that situation. How do we do something that's so wrong that people seeking asylum are now escaping us? Well, if the overall intent of this administration is to isolate the United States from the rest of the world, I suppose this is one pretty terrible way to do it. Uh, well, we'll keep you updated as we hear more about Dr. Ascari and about ICE in general. Uh, you know, the immigrant struggle is a one that does unite all of us. And I think we have to remember sometimes to look outside of what just impacts us directly to what impacts our compatriots largely. Um, so just a few housekeeping items, unless Asal and Jamal, you have anything else you want to add? No? anything uplifting for us. I do actually. Um, we have, Nayak is having a virtual event on Thursday, May 7th, that we hope is going to be much more uplifting. It's going to be a conversation with award-winning Iranian-American author Melody Moezi and our former board chair, Dr. Shuku Miri, who is a San Francisco-based psychologist. And, you know, we're going to kind of 
take a look at where everybody is right now, our community and really the world at large is struggling with this evolving reality that we now face. And so this is a good time to sort of take a second, slow down, talk about, you know, these valid feelings and anxieties that everyone is having throughout the days, these new days, and, uh, you know, find ways that we can move forward. There's a shared human experience here, and especially among Iranian Americans, sometimes we have a hard time talking about mental health and wellness. And so we're hoping that this conversation with Melody and Dr. Miri will illuminate a little bit um, of what we're all facing. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll be sending out emails and we'll be, you know, it's on May 7th at 4 p.m. It's via Zoom. You have to register. Um, and as always, if there are things that you guys want us to cover, please feel free to email us at podcast at niacouncil.org. And uh, we will, we'll be back soon. Bye-bye. You're serious, aren't you? Oh, you see, you just, you don't know my sense of humor.